Let's pray. Father, uh, open your word to us. We love you and we want uh, to know you and be inspired and, and understand this epic journey that uh, you are taking us through in our lives and that started way back with Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, bless us, Father, through your word, in your son's name. Amen. Yeah, the first talk on the series, The Story of God, yay. Uh, and the Bible is in the shape of a story. It's huge, it's amazing, it's sprawling, it's true. And we're going to go through it over six weeks. And Stuart and I are going to go through it with you. Today we start Genesis 1 and 2, uh, creation, the kingdom begins. And um, Genesis 1 and 2 are about human origins and identity. Who are we as human beings? What's our purpose? What does it mean to be human? Is there any meaning and purpose to life? Every religion or form of spirituality has a, an answer to that question. Even, a, even atheism has an answer. There is no meaning, <laughs> uh, except the meaning that you make up. <laughs> um, but now in the, in the church, we believe uh, spiritual things like the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's true and great and wonderful and incredible and needs to be said again and again. But it's not how the Bible starts. We're given a different reason for our existence in the opening chapters of the Bible. A different answer, which is a lot more down to earth, literally. And so we're told, Genesis 1, God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, which means he's going to empower this. And he said to them, be fruitful and increase, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, and so on. So already on page one of the Bible, we're told what, what we're here for. We're told the human purpose. Right at the get-go, this is why we were created we were created to rule the creation. Now, the language of ruling is a bit strange, and I doubt if the last time your boss asked you, what are you doing, you said, I'm ruling over my email. Mm, bit of a <laughs> we don't kind of talk that way, do we? Or, honey, uh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm ruling over the children right now. Uh, we don't use that language. It's a bit 80s. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, the word rule can be translated reign and, or have dominion, and it's the language of royalty. Adam and Eve, in this story, were created as God's king and queen to rule over the world on God's behalf. This is what it means to be in the image of God. And there's been lots of shifts in scholarship over what this phrase, the image of God, means. Lately, people have realised that it doesn't firstly mean that we're made like God. That's true, that's crucial, that's a key aspect. We are made like God, but the key idea, the deeper idea, is something else. Um, this phrase, kingdom of God, is a well-known idiom in the ancient world, and it refers to one person and one person alone, and that is the king. The king is in the, in the image of God. So Amun-Ray, or Ra, uh, is the image of Ra, the sun god of the Egyptian pantheon. The king was thought of as quasi-divine, a priest-like mediator between God, or the gods, and Egypt, or Babylon, or Assyria, or, or whatever. 
Now think of the implications of this. This meant that everybody else was not in the image of God and they were virtually slave labour for Pharaoh. So set against the ancient Near Eastern culture, the Genesis story was and is today subversive and provocative. It says, no, we're all in the image of God. God says, I want all of you to rule as kings and queens, not just the elite of society, not just the educated. I want all of you together as humanity, male and female, to rule over my fledgling world with me. And this is deep in our DNA. Every Disney movie has, is about exactly the same thing. A street orphan or a child from abject poverty or whatever does something heroic, something selfless, and later it's revealed that he's really a prince, not just heroic, he's really a prince. And he or she was loyal, royal all along. Uh, this is the theme of so many movies from the Chronicle, Chronicles of Narnia to the epic Lord of the Rings, even Star Wars. Who is Rey? She's a dirt poor orphan, stuck in some nowhere place, no surname. She seems like she's nothing, but she does all these heroic things and it turns out she's actually royalty. It's the same story. Movie after movie, song after song, book after book. Why is that? It's because God created us to be that, to be his royal king and queen in his creation. And we desire to matter. We desire to have meaning and significance because God has placed that on our hearts. And evolution doesn't make sense of that desire, that sense of our identity at all. Where does it come from? It can only come from the God of the Bible who created us in his image, every one of us. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you are created to rule. You, you are given a dignity and worth and calling in your life. We are all in God's image made to rule over God's world. Now, essential to this is that the creation is good, but it's not complete. We're told that God wants to keep bringing more and more goodness and beauty and order into his world. He wants it to keep going. How am I going to keep this goodness and beauty going? Oh, I know, I'll create human beings. And I will task them with the task of having children and filling the world with goodness and beauty and order. I'll make people in my image and I will partner with them to do this. So ruling is a challenging an incredible job to actively partner with God to further his world. Well, what happens next? Chapter 2, the story goes on, verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man that he had formed. So God makes a garden and places humanity in it. What's this garden? There's all these stereotypical images of Eden. I'm sure you know. Eve always has long hair combed <coughs> forward. She's always strategically standing behind a tree. Uh, where did Adam get his razor blade? And why are all these African animals in the Middle East? I do not know. And it's all pretty lame. There's nothing wild or extraordinary or breathtaking about it in the images that we're given. I always imagine Eden is like these huge stallions galloping across the slopes. Uh, uh, beautiful, sweet smells rising up where their hooves touch the ground and breaking through the undergrowth. And horse and rider breathing into each other's nostrils. And 
you know, the massive grandeur and beautiful smoothness of rippling muscles, you know, uh, that's, that's Eden. Uh, that's all from C.S. Lewis, actually, they, those images. Uh, but I, I, you know, let's, let's break our stereotypes. And we're obsessed with questions like where was Eden, when was it, and how much uh, is symbolic and how much is actual. Finding answers to those questions is a bit like the search for the Holy Grail. It's always doomed to fail. One thing that's important to notice is that things can be both symbolic and actual. Like when Jesus cursed the fig tree, that was an actual event. The fig tree did die. But it was actually a symbolic thing uh, about the judgment of God coming on Israel. So things can be both symbolic and actually have happened. But today I want to look at the symbolism in the Garden of Eden. What's being communicated? What's the significance? Of two events, God puts the man in the garden and secondly, God takes the woman out of the man. What are we being told? What's the point? Well, firstly, God puts the man in the garden. Adam means man and the man is made from dust and God takes him and places him in a garden. Why? We just heard in chapter 1 that humanity is meant to fill the earth. Why put Adam in a refuge from the world in this little garden? What's the significance of putting humanity in a garden? What's Genesis trying to say? And why is this garden in Eden? What's the significance of Eden? What is Eden? And what is this garden that is in Eden? Why put Adam in this particular place? What is Eden? Eden is paradise, but it's much more. Eden is the life centre of the world. Eden is pictured as the source of life and vitality for the world because the tree of life is in the middle of Eden, chapter 2, verse 9. Later we're told in chapter 3 that the tree of life gives eternal life to those who keep eating from it. And then in verse 10 we're told a river flows out of Eden and divides into four other rivers that water the earth. The number four is symbolic of the whole earth in the ancient world. Four means the whole earth. And these four particular rivers mentioned here flow to the extent of their world in the second millennia before Christ. The world as they knew it is watered by these rivers that flowed from Eden. He mentions the Tigris and the Euphrates, which we know. Yep. And uh, there are two other rivers that we don't know, but we can guess. And so Eden is, is pictured as the source of world rivers. Now, look at the names that these rivers are given. If you just go forward a bit there. Yeah. Uh, Pishon, increased full flowing. Gihon, bursting forth, gushing. Tigris, swift. Euphrates, sweet and, and fruitful. So these names of these rivers give us this sense that life is bursting out of Eden through these rivers into the world. And Eden is high up in the mountains, perhaps um, in the mountains of modern-day eastern Turkey or Armenia, if we go back to the map. Yeah, so up here... where these rivers start from. But it's high up in the mountains. Ezekiel 28 uh, set pictures Eden on a holy mountain. And that's significant because in the second millennia before Jesus, they pictured the centre of the world as a mountain. They imagined the world as a plain 
with a mountain in the centre of it, and they called that mountain the navel of the earth. They believed that the gods ruled the world from that symbolic mountain. Genesis 2 is using that kind of imagery. Eden is pictured here as the navel of the earth, the life-giving centre of the world, up in the mountains where heaven and earth meet, where man and God can come together with the tree of life and, and the rivers of life flowing out from it. Here's the point. God putting humanity in Eden is God putting him at the centre of the world. And from here, he'll rule the world with God because that's where God hangs out. It's a navel of the earth, world mountain situation. Pretty weird to our ears, but this is an ancient document. If you get any time, reflect on this. God gave the law to Moses on a mountain. Jerusalem is built on a mountain. The new Jerusalem is pictured on a mountain with a river flowing out of it into the world. Put that in your, your pipe and smoke it, you know? And notice that the Tower of Babel, which Stuart will look at next week, is a man-made mountain. It's a man-made navel of the earth. So God putting humanity in Eden means he's graciously bringing him to the top of the world and saying, let's rule this together. Okay, so what about this garden that is in Eden? The garden is only a part of Eden. This garden is all about ruling the world in an intimate relationship with God. See, what is a garden? The Hebrew word garden literally means walled place. How many drawings of the Garden of Eden have you seen with walls around it? Not that a garden always has to have walls, but it's the idea of an enclosed space. I always uh, thought of the Garden of Eden as this kind of vast expanse. Actually, it's the opposite. It's a confined, intimate space. Why put a wall around something? It's the idea of a sanctuary from the outside world. A garden is a place where you get away from the rat race. It's the idea of an inner sanctum. A garden was a place kings would go and relax in the ancient world. The hanging gardens of the Babylonian kings is a case in point. So really, God here is pictured as the king, and this is his garden. And in chapter 3, verse 8, we see God walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, just as the ancient Mesopotamian kings did. So what do you do in a garden? Gardens are places to rest and relax and restore, yeah? They're places to entertain friends. They're places to go for a stroll with somebody, somebody close to you, right? The Garden of Eden is where humans and God walk and talk and laugh together. It's where humans directly experience God. That's what it's saying. The garden is how we're meant to rule the world. We're created to rule, to fill the world with children and beauty and order from this world mountain called Eden. And on this mountain, there's this beautiful garden sanctuary where God is encountered and known. And the point is, we're meant to rule from this sanctuary. We're meant to rule from the sanctuary of an intimate relationship with God. 
a direct and open relationship with God, face-to-face with God. And God doesn't call the shots from the other side of the universe. He stands beside Adam and they rule the world together. And there's involvement, mutual trust and communication. And there's enjoyment. There's leisure. That's also what a garden is about. The word Eden actually means pleasure or delight. (laughs) So God is saying, let's enjoy this together. (laughs) Did you notice um, at the beginning of chapter 2, the creation of the world ends with the Sabbath day where God rests and celebrates his achievement of creating the world. And it doesn't end. Every other day ends with there was evening and there was morning, the X day. But when it gets to the seventh day, there is no ending. And the implication is, and this is said in the Bible, that that seventh day goes on forever. And what's happening there is that God creates a garden and says to Adam, come and enjoy my rest and achievement and celebration with me as we rule this world together. Come and delight together in all that I have made. Come and climb mountains just because they're there. Um, Drink coffee, not decaf. Full cream yoghurt, not light. Uh, (laughs) And let's just suck the marrow out of life, yeah? Let's Let's just delight and celebrate as we rule this world together. So that's the picture we're given of this garden sanctuary. Paradise isn't freedom from authority, as many believe. Paradise is joyfully being under God's authority, enjoying him, learning from him, knowing him, empowered by him. Humans are made for this open, rich, life-giving, delighted relationship with God. This paradise garden situation of enjoying and knowing and being with God and talking with God and and laughing with God. And that's the only place that we will find true freedom in that intimate, wonderful relationship with God. Like fish are made for water, humans are made for God. In a bid for freedom, a fish can jump out of the water and humans can turn their backs on God And as we see, they do in chapter 3. And the result in both the case of the fish jumping out of the water and the humans turning their backs on God, in both cases, what happens is death, not freedom. All right, so another way to say all of this, how are you going so far? Lots of stuff there, right? It's so rich, it's so amazing, right? So ask me questions if I lost you somewhere in there and you're going, what, 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 what? So, okay. Another way to say it is the Garden of Eden is the temple of God. It's a holy sanctuary where God dwells and is worshipped. And did you know that many of the features of the Garden of Eden are repeated in the later tabernacle and temples? Yah. Absolutely. The entrance is always from the east in temples and the tabernacle like the Garden of Eden. The menorah or the sevenfold lampstand in the tabernacle or temple symbolises the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. 
cherubim and garden plants and other images of Eden were embroidered on the tabernacle and temple walls. The gold and onyx in Genesis 2, 11 to 12 are used extensively to, to decorate the later temples and priestly garments. And Adam is told to work and keep the garden in chapter 2, verse 15. Or you could translate that, serve and guard the garden. These two Hebrew words are never used together again, except, except when describing the duty of priests in the temple. These two words, to serve and guard or work and keep, are only used again to describe what priests do. Oh, my goodness. All this means that the Garden of Eden is the archetypal temple of God that later temples are all modelled on. So Adam and Eve weren't just created to be king and queen over creation. They're also created to be priests, serving and worshipping God, their priest kings. <laughs> I like, can we get to that Qantas ad? I like the old Qantas ads of the guys on the wall of China. All these Australians uh, in white shirts standing in different locations around the world. New York, London, up in the mountains, you know, out in the desert, on the beach, all over the world, singing I Still Call Australia Home. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, imagine if they were singing praise to God instead of I Still st Call Australia Home. Nothing wrong with calling Australia home. But imagine if they were singing, they were dotted all over the world in white shirts singing praise to God. That would give us a glimpse of the priestly role of human beings. Not only are we to extend God's creative goodness and beauty throughout the earth as his king and queen, we're also to fill the earth with worship. See, the creation was created good, but not complete. What didn't the creation have at the beginning? beginning. It didn't have the voices of human beings declaring the praise of God through every part of creation. That's one of the missing elements that belongs there. The world is going to be absolutely incredible. Imagine the Blue Mountains with people praising God on every ridge. Imagine that over the whole globe, singing and worship. I love Af Africans who sing as they work. Imagine that was everywhere all the time and that's a glimpse of our priestly role. We are created kings and queens, but we're also created priests and, and then also, also prophets, as we'll see. That's the third. And those things make up this idea of image of God. A lot of ideas here. So Adam is told to tend this garden and work it. So this is the idea of cultivation. We go back to that original... Keep going back. Yeah. Oh. Keep back to it, that last one. Yeah. See, these are all the things I'm just working my way through. I hope you understand that. Uh, and I'm, I'm getting... I'm back to... I'm at cultivating care. <laughs> um, this is the... So he's t told to tend or work the garden, and that's the idea that he's going to take the raw materials of creation and make something out of it. The gold, the onyx, the aromatic resin that are mentioned here in verses 10 to 14, the soil, the trees, the water. He's going to take all that and he's going to make good and beautiful and life-giving things to the glory of God out of those raw materials. Uh, he's also going to care for creation, guard creation, keep creation. He's an environmentalist. 
Please don't imagine Adam and Eve lying on hammocks only and, you know, sipping coconut juice under waterfalls. Uh, that's true, but also imagine Adam hard at work, Eve by his side, smiling, saying, let's make a world together. And they are to work and cultivate and bring glory to God out of all that they're making. To make a world full of God-glorifying children and God-glorifying culture. A world full of love and justice and beauty and creativity and flourishing and shalom to the glory of God. And I think the point is that over time, Adam and Eve, this is the last point, extend are meant to extend the garden further and further into the world, to expand the kingdom of God, because that's what the garden is, until the whole world becomes a holy garden temple, full of nature, but also full of human culture and achievement, with God dwelling among us. Oh, and that's how the story ends in Revelation 21 and 22. The recent Star Wars movie, who's seen it? Uh, not enough of us. Come on, guys. Um, what, how many glimpses were there of human beings, their incredible culture and technology within pristine landscapes and forests and planets? And, and at least that was the good side. <laughs> The, the rebel home base, did you notice, is a garden, yeah? It's picking up on biblical imagery. Um, except that it's not God who is dwelling with them, it's the force. So, very sad. All right. So that's all of that, and now I'm going to go to the next and last point. God takes the woman out of the man. Oh, yeah. How much could I say about this? And you're probably going, yep. Let's, let's just settle back and enjoy because David's talking about men and women in Genesis 2. Well, I don't know how many songs I've written about this, how many sermons. It's absolutely amazing. Paradise isn't complete until the woman is made. There's something that's not good in the garden Although Adam is with God, he is still alone in some sense. Why was the woman taken out of the man? Why didn't God make two unisex beings out of the dust and put them together? Why create the man out of the dust, put him into a deep sleep, take a rib from his side and form the woman? What is being symbolised. This shows the nature of the relationship between the man and the woman. This is showing the incredible mystery of marriage, that the two who are different really are one. One body, one flesh, bone of my bones. She came from him and then she is reunited with him. They truly are one flesh in origin and in completion. They are one person. Why? Because God doesn't want two rulers of creation, 
two humans ruling in disagreement. He wants two humans ruling as one. The male and the female as two different but complementary parts fitting perfectly together, operating in harmony, oneness and profound intimacy, not competition. In verse 24, sex is integral to their deep union. It's also part of the pleasure and delight of the garden of delight. And of course, sex is integral to their task of filling the earth with children. And verse 25, they were naked and they felt no shame, or as Milton says in Paradise Lost, nor those mysterious parts were then concealed. Another line from Milton is that they were in paradise in each other's arms at the top of God's world mountain. They aren't rivals. They rule as one. One person, one flesh, one entity. Years ago, Glenda and I and the kids stayed at Charlotte Pass in Mount Kosciuszko, and we were just there a couple of weeks ago again for the second time. But all six of us were in one room, four kids and us, and it was our ninth wedding anniversary. Hey, 38 years married now, coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, But our ninth wedding anniversary, and there was an electrical storm, (laughs) and a fire was going inside in a log, you know, a prop. An inside fire, a safe fire was going, uh, and it was just so romantic. Um, and the next day we went up to the top of Mount Kosciuszko, and we stood with the clouds fast-forwarding above us, like on a music video, you know? Like, and gee, we felt like Adam and Eve on God's, God's world mountain. It was great, uh, but we started, having, we started filling the earth already by then. So we had, we, we had the four of them. By the way, for those of you who aren't married or can't have children, the human task isn't just to be married or to make babies. It's to fill the earth with beauty, goodness and worship. That's our purpose. And so having babies and being married is not the only way to do that. Also, one of the best pieces of advice that Glenda and I have received over all these years is that if you can't have children or if your children have grown up and moved out, it's important to give birth to some creative project together because we were created to rule together. And so many couples, he's off doing this over here and she's off doing this over there and they don't actually produce something beautiful and wonderful together. So whatever that is, um, we need to do things to produce things to beauty together as part of our marriage, if we're to have a strong marriage. And the man is the one God created first, which in the ancient Near East means that he has authority and responsibility to lead her. And he is the one God first spoke to, gave his word to, so that he could love her by the washing with water through the word, as the Apostle Paul puts it. So his leadership is about speaking the word of God over her. And he calls her Eve, which means life, 
for she will be the mother of all the living. Chapter 3, verse 20. In other words, he prophesies over her. He begins to speak the word of God over her. And so we see the beginnings of the spiritual leadership that a husband is tasked with. And she is called Ezer, which means strong helper. And after the world falls, through her, the Messiah will come and save the world. Chapter 3, verse 15. And these different and complementary roles within a relationship of love enable them to operate in unity as one person, not as rivals. So how are we to rule the world? From the sanctuary of an intimate, garden-like, paradise relationship with the living God. And from the sanctuary of an intimate and life-giving relationship between a husband and wife and all the blessing that flows from that wonderful, beautiful relationship flowing out into the world so that all benefit from it. So that even if you're not married, you will benefit from these wonderful marriages that God has created throughout the world. And the rest of the story is about married couples as the foundation for society. And it's all about marriages and families and genealogies as humanity fills the earth with children. So at the centre of paradise is marriage, one man, one woman, one flesh, promiscuity, same-sex relationships, abstaining from sex within marriage, polygamy, polyamorous relationships and divorce are not the vision that is presented here. Marriages where husband and wife are at war with each other is not the vision here. Or where he is not leading and loving her with the life-giving word of God that he has been given. That is not the vision here. And in our 38 years, I know that when I stop leading and loving her through the word, she starts to lose interest. She's not as attracted. And when she no longer supports the vision that I have in a kingdom direction, I begin to be less attracted. And this is the secret of our marriage, that we keep doing those things and we then can operate wonderfully in harmony as one. C.S. Lewis says something amazing that I want to close with. In the secular world, men and women can and must be treated as unisex, interchangeable neuters, citizens and workers. However, that is a fiction that, is a la- that we are allowed to shed when we return to the world of reality, God's world. There we may resume our real identities as men and women. Today, fallen men with their oppression and fallen women with their idolatrous need have made marriage not good. And our culture has decided that the safest thing to do is to do away with gender roles. And C.S. Lewis says the fiction of unisex interchangeable 
voters, citizens and employees and so on, is a safeguard. And that's appropriate. But in the home and in the church, we have access to Jesus Christ. Through him, we re-enter the garden and come to know God intimately again. Actually, as we read on, it turns out that Jesus is what the Garden of Eden was always pointing to. He is paradise. He is the garden temple. He and his cross are the tree of life. He is the mountain or rock that we stand upon. He is the kingdom of God. And from him, rivers of living water flow into the whole world, which is his spirit moving throughout the world and welling up in the hearts of those who put their trust in him. And like these rivers in Eden, the spirit is bursting forth, bringing sweetness, bearing fruit and increasing. And it all flows from Jesus Christ and his cross. And in Christ, we can be naked and unashamed again. Because with him we have access to both repentance and forgiveness. These are crucial tools if we as fallen men and women are going to resume the glorious mantles of our genders. Able to say to each other, I'm sorry, I got it so wrong, I hurt you, please forgive me. And live together as God's people, male and female, in harmony again. Fallen, redeemed, forgiven and forgiving. Partnering together again as we were created to. To expand the kingdom throughout the world. Erasing our gender differences is only going to impoverish our lives and impoverish creation. Let's not. Let's so, so not.